Welcome to the Big Unlock Podcast, where we discuss digital transformation and emerging technologies in healthcare. Here, some of the most innovative thinkers and leaders in healthcare and technology talk about how they are driving change in their organizations. Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to my podcast. And it is my great privilege and honor today to introduce my very special guest and friend, Russ Branzel, CEO of Chime. Russ, thank you so much for taking time to be with us today and welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's an honor. Thank you, Russ. So for the benefit of uh, our listeners, would you care to tell us a little bit about what Chime is and what Chime does? Yeah, so Chime, or the College of Healthcare Information Management Executives, which is a mouthful, why we call it Chime, instead of going through all those words, is a professional association for healthcare IT executives. It could be CIOs, which has been our history. We also have CMIOs in the organization, CNIOs, Chief Innovation Now, and a bunch of other titles as the, as the industry continues to grow in mature positions. And so our role is simple. Uh, our role is to support our members, both our Chime members and our Chime Foundation, which are our vendor partners, in their transformation is their growth to support the industry. We're not a trade show organization. We don't run expos. Our whole role is to pour into these folks, support them in Washington, support them in their professional development, help them be the best leaders they can be as we fix uh, maybe what has been pointed out even most recently, a little bit of a broken system around the globe. <laughs> So Chime has seen some significant growth recently over the last few years. We now are in 57 countries around the world. We have 11 independent operating groups or chapters in other countries. And the domestic growth here in the United States has not only grown significantly in the CIO ranks and other Chime members, but we've also launched three other professional associations for chief technology, chief application, and chief information security officers. And those have seen substantial growth. And I think a lot of that just has to do with the fact that all of these roles are hitting a pretty high peak of maturity in their organizations. And as we can see recently, both for negative reasons, but also positive outcomes, uh, has never been more important than it is right now uh, with what we're fighting. And of course, I am proud to say that uh, my firm, Demo Consulting, is also a foundation partner with Chime, and we have benefited greatly from the partnership. And I want to Thank you and your team for all the wonderful work that you continue to do. Thank you. It is an honor to have you in the organization, but most importantly, serving alongside of us as we try to take on tough stuff. Very good. So let's quickly spend a minute on how the pandemic has impacted Chime and what changes uh, you have had to make in the recent past. So obviously, we uh, did not get to have our face-to-face meeting in the spring that's held prior to uh, the HIMSS annual conference which for all of our members that normally attend that, doesn't matter whether it's in the foundation or Chime, that's always a good time for us. It's a time for us to refresh relationships, build new networks, and that was difficult for us. Now, the converse of that side has actually been what I would construe as a a significant positive, and that is the emerging technologies that are already out there that have gone from probably infancy to at least early adulthood in a matter of uh, light years at this point, whether it's what we're on now, Zoom, or any of these other technologies that are out there, we've actually spent more quality time with people. One, we're constrained to home, so we're making a different effort and a different focus than traveling around the globe. 
but we've been able to spend some quality time with people, hear what's going on, find out new ways to support them. And that's driven us, not that our technology and our, and our strategy wasn't already taking us there, but we were already heading in a digital path. And the digital path that we're on really was to support the entire globe from a digital platform perspective. Like many of our members, regardless, again, whether it's foundation firms or Chime members, you know, things that were planned for maybe months, maybe even years, have gotten done in weeks and days. We've now completely changed to a digital environment that will also complement in-person meetings in the future when things normalize out. And that's probably the biggest change. But as you probably expect, the biggest impact has been there is so much coming out of Washington right now and states, but mostly Washington, that we're spending in a an extremely large amount of time ciphering through all the different information, getting member alerts out. The perfect example is today when a alert that went out yesterday from the government, immediately they changed the timing within 24 hours of sending out, they immediately changed the timing again. Yeah, that's kind of what's going on in our world. Well, we'll come back to Washington DC and the work that uh, Chime is doing on behalf of uh, all the members. Let's start with this. From your point of view as a CEO of Chime, you get to see a broad cross-section of health systems across the country, and you probably have visibility from a first-time perspective as to what's really going on. And we are beginning to see some early signs of some distress that health systems are going through, financially speaking. We saw HCA announce their results earlier this week, and they indicated that the results were not favorable, primarily because of all the non-elective procedures and things like that that have kind of dropped in volumes. But that's just one data point. I'm curious to know what you're seeing and hearing as it relates to how the pandemic is going to impact health systems in the near term. What should we expect? Yeah, I think there's little doubt. Uh, And I'm sure there are a few pockets of exceptions, but I'll talk in generalities, whether it's the U.S. or actually globally even different forms of of economic models in hospitals or or health systems around the globe, everyone's taken a big hit on this. And the U.S. model, which very much is revenue-based, is probably taking it the most significant hits on this. Uh, I've talked to people just about, uh, maybe not every state, let's just say a significant number of them, and, and the themes are the same. Significant decreases in outpatient and acute procedures and or admissions, And that just has a significant effect to the bottom line, which means they are going to have to make hard decisions or are making hard decisions right now. And I think it's going to come in that portion of this is going to come in two significant waves. One, short-term weathering, what they're doing to just make sure they can still meet the mission requirements. And then the long-term impact of that as well. Well, a lot of that will be told by time and how big of an impact. Some organizations are going to be well to weather this well. They've got deep cash on hand and they can weather this out. Uh, They've built digital strategies that probably help them somewhat through this, maybe a little more proactively than others. But there's definitely some that this will be a substantial, substantial long-term multi-year hit to recover from. And they'll have to figure out how and what they do to invest and recover from that. So... In the, the government announced a stimulus package, and the second one is going through. Uh, there was a significant amount of money set aside for hospitals. I, I believe it was in the region of $100 billion in the first round of the stimulus. Is that making a significant impact, or is it just a drop in the bucket in the grand scheme of things? Yeah, it's, it's funny because that's immediately the words that came into my mind was the drop in the bucket. Granted, anything that comes in at this point is going to help. 
I mean, especially whether it's the PPP program for smaller organizations or a significant cash flow increase or infusion from these government stimulus funds are going to help. Don't We can't infer that they won't, but it is significantly less. I was spending time with some of the leadership of some of the other large associations that you can imagine what their advocacy work has been doing in Washington, D.C. And one of the numbers that one of the CEOs threw out was to make this a make the kind of impact to normalize this out. We're probably talking north of a trillion dollars. So if 100 billion was infused, that means we're probably missing this by about 90 percent. And again, I've talked to some CIOs representing their organizations that said they'll weather this and it's going to hurt. I've heard some say they're going to weather this and they're really worried about what this looks like long term. So I know there was a second round that's trying to be worked on right now for some organizations, but it's definitely it's the right direction. But when you tell every health system in the country, turn off your elective procedures, turn off the things that generally drive the engine, even if you don't have COVID patients in, which was probably the right thing to do initially it does have a dramatic negative effect. Right. You mentioned digital transformation. And at time, you've undergone a bit of a digital transformation yourself in response to the crisis. I can speak for my organization. We've been a virtual company forever, and we really didn't uh, feel any impact. We just transitioned very smoothly from our normal way of working to the current way of working, with the only exception being that I don't travel anymore. I haven't traveled (laughs) for a while. And in fact, I remember the last date I traveled was the 6th of March. And in hindsight, maybe I shouldn't have traveled on the 6th of March. But that's a whole separate story. John Kravitz, Chime Chair and CIO of Geisinger, was on my podcast. And he talked about digital transformation. And it was interesting. What he said to me was that his priorities in the near term have definitely been influenced by the response effort to the pandemic. but That doesn't mean they're slowing down on digital transformation because that is what is going to position the organization for the future. I'm just curious, what are you hearing with regards to the balancing of the near-term emergency-related response and what is absolutely important and essential for the longer-term survival and sustenance of the organization? What are you seeing across the board? Yeah, I think there definitely is a percentage of organizations. You could probably divide this into thirds, and that's, again, way over generalizing. There are probably a third of organizations that are very similar to John's, and obviously I'm very close to John, spent a lot of time with him being my boss, but know the organization well also, that are really these organizations have been focused on digital transformation. And again, a I don't want to say unfortunate because it is fortunate for us, organizations like that when this occurred were able to flex and move because they live a world of digital transformation already. And this this has really forced what probably we were projecting three to five years based on a normal adoption curve to get to some of the places. The difference is we did it in three to five weeks. And so some organizations like John's were able to do that a little more seamlessly. Uh, Maybe a better way to put that is a little less difficultly. Some organizations were able to do it and it was painful. And there's still some organizations that are really struggling with that. I think John is is a great example of this is a symbiotic relationship. Their digital strategy is their strategy moving forward and even today. So it fits part and parcel to their reaction to this from a COVID as well. 
So it's not different. It's just now an adaptation to an existing strategy. Some organizations, this has really shined the light on what they were thinking of doing. Now they've done it in three to five weeks. Now they're going to put some really good wrappers around this, figure out how to really thrive in this environment over the next few years. But it is relatively new. For those that wasn't, this wasn't even on their radar, they're going to struggle for a little while. And maybe they'll get help from people like you and others out there that can help them in this journey. But there's definitely some out there, especially some of our smaller and rurals that don't have the infrastructure, the support, the telemedicine, the other things, that this will be a bit of a journey for them. And they may return to back a little bit more of an old school mentality. Are we going to see some uh, hospitals not make it? to put it in a somewhat Darwinistic way that it's going to be the survival of the digital fittest and some are just not going to make it and we're going to have to be prepared for that? No, I do think, I'll just put it to normal numbers that have come out from the AHA in years past. There are hospitals that no matter what, even if this didn't occur, there are hospitals that are going to merge with others, maybe close down. There were some reported even last year that were just closing down because their financial model their local area was decreasing in population. There's just that normal process that goes on in any large ecosystem like healthcare. I think this may accelerate it for some as they struggle or financial issues may happen. It may accelerate for a short term, maybe for a long term, but I think for at least the short term, you may see mergers and acquisitions actually accelerate, especially with those with the cash ability to help others out and it's a good fit. But right out of the gate, we're just going to see hospitals close. I hope communities don't allow that to occur because they are such a vital asset. But in some places, maybe when there's there, there may be outside of COVID, maybe overbedded, too much competition. You may see some, and that may not be a bad thing. It may be a horrible thing. It just depends on each situation in each community. Yeah. Well, one, one thing is for sure. It seems like we're going to see some structural changes in the entire uh, healthcare ecosystem. I wanted to spend one more minute on this uh, in terms of the technology. And as you rightly pointed out, people have gone overnight to adopting uh, telehealth as a default mode of operation, at least for the foreseeable future. And that, among other things, puts a lot of pressure on the vendors, the technology vendors, to make sure that the technology holds them. What are you hearing when it comes to this? You mentioned Zoom. Zoom went from 10 million subscribers to 200 million. And we all know that Zoom has had some issues as well, but setting that aside, I'm particularly interested in what you're hearing about how the telehealth technologies are holding up. I've actually been able to talk to quite a few, I shouldn't say quite a few, a few of the the senior leaders, uh, specifically CEOs of some of the telemedicine companies. And it's interesting to hear their numbers when they talk about their entire 2019 volume increase was 20%. And they were thrilled with that because they beat their budget estimates. And the first week of this, it went up 700%. And then the next week, it went up 1,000%. And they said, at some point, we just stopped counting because a straight-up curve is really not a curve. It's just a line. And most of them said they're handling it well. The biggest issues that they're seeing is the lack of technology support from the back end. Probably not technology support. I would actually use the word maturity on the back end support, home broadband issues, no one was expecting, I'll pick on John, no one was expecting 1,800 physicians in rural Pennsylvania that live everywhere all of a sudden over a weekend to have to go home and have high-quality digital internet yeah. access at home to be able to do telemedicine. That there's just going to be some latency issues to getting that all up to the speed it should be. 
it does point out also the, the rural issues that we have. It's not a rural hospital as much issue because most of them have some level of access. It's connecting to all the rural individuals that may want to seek that care. And there is some major issues that are there. But again, the telehealth providers seem to be doing well. Talking to some of the others that I was actually really surprised by, it truly was some epiphic moments this week that I didn't really think about. And that was the demand that has been placed on the hardware providers, laptops, tablets, iPads, surfaces, whatever you want to use brand names, throw it out there. And the fact that one, a lot of this comes from overseas and a lot of those pipelines are drying up or are shut off temporarily. The other is there was only so much stock on hand. And when all of a sudden overnight, you need a thousand of these or 5,000 of that. Well, one organization doing that might not be too bad. A hundred, well, that could be problematic. 5,000 or even tens of thousands, all ordering this much equipment all at the same time. Talking to one of the CIOs in New York, he said their standard order is 1,000 to 5,000 orders devices at a time. And they're just generally ordering about every three to five days. And what I heard from several of the hardware vendors are they're having to decide who to send equipment to. Wow. That there's constraints in the supply chain. And actually, those were all times I spent with people this week. That's the first time I heard that. And just weirdly, because of the cycle of talking to people, I heard that three times this week that there is a definite supply issue with the type of hardware needed. And CIOs are what they're doing is they're taking their company credit card and they're running down to Best Buy and buying up whatever they can or going down to Walmart or Costco or wherever and buying what they can because there actually may be some significant supply demand issues for this, at least short term. Yeah, but not a great time if your assets are end of life. You could be having some some hard, you know, issues in refreshing or replacing them. So let's switch to Washington. You mentioned uh, you know your advocacy work and uh, all the other uh, work that Chime, the Chime members. By the way, big shout out to the Chime team that keeps us informed about what's going on in Washington. Your big shout out to the webinars that uh, Marie Savickus and everybody else is doing. I just want you to know that you know we greatly appreciate it as members of Chime. A couple of big announcements have come out in the recent past. Now, I know that every day there are some incremental announcements, but the two big ones I want to talk about, the final interoperability ruling and the FCC telehealth $200 million investment program. For the benefit of our listeners, can you help unpack what that means for your members? Yeah, whether I'm agreeing or not agreeing with it, I'll give you kind of the perspective that we've heard of what ONC's intent is, especially with the final interoperability rule is, I think they reached to a point where they had a desire to, I'll use their words exactly, and putting little quote signs up in the air, liberate data flow in the industry. And I think that was their intent was we've made this huge investment in EMRs, which by the way, thank God we put EMRs in over the last five to seven years or none of what we've done the last two months could have ever occurred. No matter how painful or maybe not running as well as they could for physicians and nurses, Thank God we put these things in or we would have been in a lot bigger hurt. But we really made this huge investment. Now, how do we, as they put it, liberate the data? And so the intent of the interoperability rule from their perspective, and in many cases, we agree with with some of their philosophies in this. There are some areas that we have concerns through APIs, information sharing requirements, ADT requirements. They want to accelerate the process 
I'll use another word, mandate the process to make these standard APIs, standard flows and standard requirements occur at a pretty fast pace, pretty fast adoption pace. Now, what we still are trying to figure out from this week is, sounds like they're jumbling a little bit the finalization of the enforcement dates based on different requirements. But when you consider that there's some pretty fast requirements while we're fighting the COVID, we've expressed pretty strong that the longer we can give our organizations time to adapt to this, we can. Uh, probably the biggest area of concern that we have though is still how do you balance open accessibility, which by the way, this battle that I'm about to describe has been going on for years and decades. For this isn't here. new. How do you balance security and privacy with outright open accessibility and flow? And everybody in between has expressed their concerns or opinions that one area is right, one area is wrong. Well, the reality is, and I think Chime tries to play in the middle as much as possible, the reality is everybody's right. And that's the hard part when you think about this. We should have strong security and privacy. We should have open flow. I think as we work through this, what we're gonna see is there's gonna be some areas that maybe need some more tweaking like most government rules. And there'll be some areas that flow fairly easily and well. We do know there are some areas that do amazing work, whether they're doing it with a foundation or vendor partner, or they're doing it through an HIE. ADT flows seamlessly through their areas. Now the question is, how can we scale that up and do that now nationwide? It's going to be a challenge to do that in a year. It really will be. Maybe your hospital with your HIE, perfect, beautiful. You can handle that in Chicago. Well, in rural Nebraska, maybe not going to be as easy. We'll have to see. But again, the basic philosophy, now the part that probably everybody's worried the most about is ending up in an orange jumpsuit, picking up garbage on the side of the highway because I was a information blocker. Because that really is still a fundamental issue that, that most people have a hard time getting their head around is how am I going to ensure that I'm not labeled and or accused or even worse than that, indicted for being an information yeah. blocker. And I think that's the number one area still that there is significant work to be done on even what enforcement and or the penalties or the thoughts around what really that is occurring. Yeah, that's a pretty big stick. Uh, I mean, if you look at it that way. What about the FCC? Let's, let's talk about the telehealth uh, investment funding. Good news, right? I think that's good news, but in any of our minds, I'm sure your mind, I'm definitely in my mind, when you start talking about hundreds of millions of dollars, you think, wow, this is going to, this will revolutionize things. Well, it would be if it came to me, but um, <laughs> the, the, the reality is it, it's still a relatively small amount. I think the hope from this was, one, it will fund some of the stuff they've been forced to already do, but it will also hopefully open up some opportunity to extend this into some environments where it hasn't maybe seen the maturity that it has. Rural environments, yeah. rural hospitals. I mean, we had, this isn't new technology. Let's just be blunt. I mean, we had telemedicine into rural clinics and when I was in Colorado, all the way back in the early 2000s, which doesn't sound that long ago until you consider it was almost 20 years ago that we connected every ED in rural Colorado to telemedicine. It's just, it hasn't taken off to the degree that now this has caused it to, uh, the yeah. money will help, but it doesn't go anywhere near as far as it needs to, to, to yeah. really get us the maturity we need. Well, my understanding of this is that uh, the 200 million is really seed money because they put a cap of a million dollars for every single application. So 
you know, you get a million dollars if you have an interesting idea. And from the initial awards that have been announced, it seems to me that the focus seems to be to really enhance the reach of telemedicine towards serving uh, underprivileged, low-income kind of populations, which in all fairness is a good focus uh, for a program like this. But it's really seed money. A million dollars is not a not a lot of money unless you're a tiny startup. But I think it's it's important to at least give some kind of an initial boost or support so that if the program succeeds, then you know organizations can go out and find ways to invest more money in it and monetize it and so on. And that's kind of how I see it. Well, we'll see. Who knows? There may be another round or maybe they'll do a follow-on funding. I don't know. You bring up a great point, though, and it's easy to say small and rural and you immediately think the open fields of, of Kansas, when in reality, in some cases, it could be the outskirts of Chicago or an underserved older area in Detroit that just doesn't have the infrastructure they need or the broadband they need to be able to take advantage of this. In some cases, they need it more than some others that are out there. So yeah, yeah, it, it is a universal issue. Yeah. Well, we're coming up to the close of our time here, Russ. Uh, I just have one last question for you. What does a new normal look like for healthcare? Whenever <laughs> that is. Well, if, if I could answer that, they would just relabel me a, a healthcare IT futurist and I'd go on the speaking tour, but nobody's hiring speakers right now either. So, yeah. you know, I think there's two thoughts that we need to consider right now. One is this concept that we're going to jump from, as I've been using the wave theory on this, is, is expressing it. The wave one is going to be this COVID thing. It comes up, there's a tail, and then we recover. And wave two meets it somewhere in the middle, which is pure recovery. And we're back to quote unquote normal. I think is is incorrect. I think there's at least one, maybe two more curves involved in here in the middle. There probably is a long-term curve of returning back to semi-normal hospital operations, EDs functioning the way they should, surgery suites operating the way they should, inpatient rooms. There is that. But there's this probably this crazy phase in between where you keep COVID, COVID operations and response things up while you start trying to turn on elective surgeries. And we've talked to some that have actually started turning elective surgeries on this week and a whole bunch that will be turning them on early next week ahead of even some of the recommendations. So we'll see how that works out. And I think what we're going to see is there's that, but there's the impact, whether unintended or intended, of this technology digital activity that goes on. And I've been keeping notes in all my little binders here I should be digital, I'm sure, but I'm not. I'm I'm, uh, I'm actually writing this all down because I love flipping through all these pages at one time. It is interesting hearing the stories right now, whether it's big corporations that said, we sent 48,000 people home that used to work in offices. We'll only bring back 18,000 of them yeah. to offices. We're already canceling leases. I was like, okay, that's hard to process. Hospitals saying the same thing. Who really needs to be on the grounds and does it actually create a better environment by not having these things there. So I think there's that portion of it is where will people work? Then the other portion of this is how will people work in the future, which is really the fundamental question is how will digital stuff, a really fancy technical term there, digital stuff fundamentally change the DNA and how we work as a society moving forward. And what's the long-term impact of that? Because there is a behavioral mental part of this that we have to consider, which I always call the fourth or unintended or unwatched wave, which is this is going to fundamentally change people 
and people don't always handle change well, we're going to have to do a lot of human care yeah. during this period of time to help people through this. Jobs will disappear. New jobs will be created. How do we help people? Yeah. The way we work changes, the way we interact with each other. I've seen you more video in the last month than I've ever seen you. So it does have an advantage, but it's different. That's true. That's true. And, you know, you mentioned lease. Uh, my firm's Bangalore office lease came up for renewal on the 31st of March. We decided not to renew and we are probably not going back to an office at all. We're going to remain virtual. We're a small company, relatively speaking, but I'm sure a lot of companies are going to make decisions like that. And come back to your question, you know, the point you made about normalcy. I think the COVID-19 uh, outbreak, what I'm reading and hearing is that it's going to be a sawtooth curve. It's going to go down, it'll come back up, go down, come back up. Maybe, you know, the lower and lower amplitudes as we go forward. And the recovery and the return to normalcy will also reflect and mirror that sawtooth curve in some ways. And uh, we can only hope that, you know, the amplitudes get smaller and smaller till it comes to some kind of a straight line. We don't know when that is going to be. But Russ, as always, a real pleasure speaking with you. Stay safe and uh, we'll talk soon. Thank you very much. Blessings all. Take care. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Subscribe to our podcast series at www.thebigunlock.com and write to us at info at thebigunlock.com.